And so that's where we pick up the story today. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bazor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bazor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of uh, a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of, an Egyptian, of Egypt, a servant to the, an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Kerithites and against that which belongs to Judah <clears throat> and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted the camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bazor and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? 
For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present from you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negev, in Jiddah, in Aurora, in Sipmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakel, in the cities of the Jeremiralites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bo-Ashan, in Atach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. <clears throat> I need a drink after that. Okay, let's um, seek the Lord uh, for him to um, help us to understand his word. Heavenly Father, we know that, um, as Jesus said, men cannot live by bread alone, but by every mouth, uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so, Father, we uh, come as those hungry for your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would remove any distraction from our minds, uh, that you would also enable us to hear your word with uh, open ears, uh, with the faith that receives your word as it really is, the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that what we hear uh, and where we are challenged, where we are convicted, that we would respond <clears throat> in, in the faith that leads to obedience. Uh, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> You know, last uh, Sunday, um, as soon as the service ended, some of you might have noticed that I was um, quickly on my <clears throat> phone, uh, wandering out to that back room. Uh, now, what was going on, I was actually calling Jasmine, uh, because straight after the service, one of my children rushed up to me and said, Mum had to go home because there's been a problem. And uh, that sounded very strange, so I called Jasmine up to find out what was going on. Now, it turns out our neighbours had all gathered at our house and were looking through our windows because the smoke alarm was going off. And uh, one of them called Jasmine. Uh, this was just as the service ended. And, uh, and so you can imagine the panic um, we were in. You know, here I am imagining, um, you know, a house going up in flames and, uh, you know, that lovely guitar um, burning. And... <clears throat> uh, now, Jasmine said she was, because I was talking to her as she was driving there, and she said, I'm expecting to see smoke rising from Lang Warren as I travel down the freeway. Thankfully, when she got there, no smoke, no fire trucks, no frantic neighbours. Uh, all was calm except for this um, stupid um, fire, I mean, smoke alarm <clears throat> going off for, for no reason, apparently. And it's actually a new one, so don't get a, um, what is it, quell? Anyway. Um, <laughs> But that experience of panic, it did actually remind me of this passage in 1 Samuel 30. Uh, when I started reading it, that immediately came to my mind. Um, because in this passage, David also experiences this moment of panic. And yet, unlike the experience Jasmine and I had, David's was not a false alarm. No, no, what he faced was really, if you think about it, one of the hardest things you could ever face. 
And the reason it's recorded for us is because this chapter actually teaches us a lot of things about David himself. You know, David's the soon-to-be king of Israel. And yet in this passage, we find out what kind of king he is. In fact, what it's teaching, it's saying this is the kind of king God's people need. Uh, because we see in this passage, um, there's three parts to it. We see the king's strength in verses 1 to 8. Uh, we see the king's deliverance in verses 9 to uh, 20. And we see the king's grace in verses 21 to 23. And as we go through these three parts, what we'll actually see is that it wasn't just teaching the type of king God's people needed back then. It's actually teaching us the kind of king that we all need. We need a king like this. So let's have a look at these three parts. Uh, First of all, let's look at the king's strength in verses 1 to 8. So we have the situation laid out for us in verses 1 to 2. Excuse me, but uh, David's experience of it doesn't come until verse 3. And there we read that when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now, can you imagine how confronting that would, would have been? Now, if you're a parent, I think you can, can imagine the, the kind of feelings that you would have uh, if you're married. Um, because these men have just completed a 100-kilometre multi-day journey to get back to Ziklag. And so you can imagine over that, that journey them feeling that sense of excitement, the closer they got to being reunited with their loved ones. And yet as they're making that journey, when Ziklag finally came into view suddenly alarm would have started to fall upon these men as they saw smoke rising from the city. You could imagine them running those last few kilometres to find out what is going on. And when they actually get there, they they are confronted with, with really what is the stuff of nightmares because no one can be found. Everything's burned. There's, There's no sign of anyone. And, you know, what's going on? Imagine... The confusion, imagine the questions, imagine that sense of panic. You wouldn't be able to think straight. And and, and they're wondering, where are they? Uh, Are they still alive? What horrors are they going through? Just imagine the the stress that it would have been. In fact, we can see how um, devastating it was because in verse 4 it says that all the people with David, they all raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And then what we see is that that anguish that they experience, it slowly gives way to anger. The blame blame game starts to take momentum because David's men, they've been through a lot with David. They've been loyal to him this whole time. It's cost them greatly. They've had to live as um, exiles for, for all this time, constantly being attacked. But now this is almost just too much. Okay, they've been loyal to David, not now, not when you lose your own family. And so they turn on him. Uh, they speak of stoning him. And so if you, could, if you were David, how would you cope with that? On the one hand, you've lost your family. You don't know what's going on. And now the, the, all these blokes want to kill you? David was greatly distressed. You know, it's an understatement, isn't it? Verse 6, David was greatly distressed. It would have been an absolutely terrifying predicament to be in. And we have to keep in mind that this is on top of everything else that they've been through. 
Right? They've just escaped that horrible situation of being caught in a Philistine army, having to front up against your own people. Yes, they were saved from that, and yet it's just like out of the fry pan, into the fire. And ever since David has been anointed king of Israel, it's just gone from bad to worse. One trial after another. Uh, you could imagine David many times in his life saying, life can't get any worse than this. And then it does. And I think some of you know what that feels like. Where you're in the middle of something that's, that's very hard. Okay, it's, it's an awful situation to be in, but then something else really bad comes on top of it and it is absolutely crushing. You actually think, how can you go on? So how do you go on? What do you do when things can't get any worse and then they do? Well, there's a very important statement at the end of verse 6 where David, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what you do when you're at your absolute wit's end. So what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, it means two things. It means, first of all, you've got to reach out to God and embrace his promises to you. That's what it means. And the reason we know that is because this is not the first time this statement has come up in 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 23, David again was at a very low point. And his best friend, Jonathan, caught up with David, could see that David was weak. He wasn't coping. And so what did Jonathan do? It said that Jonathan strengthened his hand in the Lord. And we were told in that chapter what that means, because in verse 17 of that chapter, uh, it says that what Jonathan did is he reminded David and he reassured David of God's promise to David. He said to David something along the lines of, David, don't forget, you have been anointed king of Israel. God has told you, you are going to be the king. So no matter what happens, that's going to happen. That can't fail. And David found strength in that. He could get up and keep going. And so at this point, that's what he's doing again. He's reminding himself of God's promise to him. When he's, when he's like in this fear of being killed, the fear of having lost everything he loves, that's where he drew the strength uh, to keep going. And uh, I'm pretty sure you can see how um, helpful that is and how practical that is. Because when you're at your wit's end or when you're in a great um, panic uh, or when you're feeling really crushed, or overwhelmed, or burdened. You know, you know what it's like to feel like just everything's out of control. It, it's almost like, you know, you can't do anything. And, and here we're, we're showing, here's something we can do that's always certain, okay, that will always put things right again. And it's to find the strength in God. Look how helpful this is. Let me give you some examples. Are some of you here going through a trial right now? Okay, what is God's promise to you if you're in Christ? God's promise is his grace to you. He promises to be with you in that, to keep you, to protect you, to bring you safely through if you're one of his. That's the promise. Or here's another situation. Are you anxious about the future? Is there something coming up that's stressing you out? What is God's promise to you? 
He will give you exactly what you need at that time so you can cope. Okay, that's what it means, that he, he, he gives grace. And then he promises a future that's glorious. Ultimately, you have nothing to fear if you cling to God. Have some of you here been treated unfairly? What is God's promise? His promise is he will right all wrongs. Have some of you been ridiculed for being a Christian? God promises, blessed are the persecuted. Have some of you lost a loved one in Christ? God promises that on the last day you will be reunited with them. Some of you here are overwhelmed by your struggle with sin. God promises a way out in temptation. Okay, do you see how practical this is? When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel weak, when you're in a panic, turn to God, be strengthened in Him. Uh, now, just if you ever look at the way this is written, uh, you've got verse 6, it actually comes after verse 4, um, and what I mean by that is, David, it says that they, they wept until they had no strength left. So here's a bunch of guys who have nothing left in the tank. And only then does it say David strengthened himself in the Lord. And so when you think about it, that actually must mean that you only discover God's strength when you first let go of your own. You know, when you stop depending on your own efforts, when you stop depending on your own uh, wisdom or, or intellect or uh, your own strength, that's when you can actually discover that God's strength is all you need, that, that he is sufficient for you. So that's the one thing, cling to God's promise. The other part to it, though, is you strengthen yourself by making the most of your access to God. In other words, prayer. And we see that in uh, verses 7 to 8, um, because here, notice David, um, he, he goes to Abiathar the priest, and he asks for the ephod. Um, now, we've talked about that in the series in um, other sermons, but Essentially what it means is this. That was David's access to God. Okay, How would David have any access to God? Only through a priest. And how would he hear God's word? Through this, um, the ephod. And uh, today, you know, we don't have an Abiathar the priest. We don't have an ephod. But we do have something much better. We actually have the great high priest, Jesus himself. And have a look at Hebrews 4.16, this is what it says that you know, through Jesus, what do we have? The confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, that's the, that's the pathway to God's strength coming into your life. Prayer. And you have that full access to him through Jesus. And because we're now talking about Jesus, uh, you actually can't help reading... Um, this section on David's life without seeing like a shadow of Jesus falling across everything that happens. Uh, because David, he really is a picture of the man of sorrows. Think about David's life. He, he's the fellow who uh, was constantly hunted. Uh, he's the fellow who lived as an outcast with a small bunch of outcasts tagging along. David was someone who 
was the anointed king and yet looked nothing like a king because his life was characterized by rejection and by suffering. And David, you know, the worst suffering came at the end. Well, doesn't that remind you of Jesus? But after all Jesus went through, you know, even being nailed to a cross, what could get worse than that? Oh, let me tell you. As he was hanging on the cross, darkness comes on the land and God pours out, the Father pours out his wrath for all of our sins on his Son. Okay? It can't get any worse. Yes, it does. But what's Jesus doing when he's hanging on that cross? What's he doing? He's strengthening himself in the Lord, his God. How do we know that? Because it looks like Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22 as he's hanging on the cross. You know that psalm that begins with those haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, what, that's where Jesus' mind is. And why? Because Psalm 22 is all about the cross. It's all about the suffering. But Psalm 22 ends with this wonderful promise. And it's a personal promise to Jesus because it's a promise of victory over the cross. Psalm 22 talks about the resurrection. And it talks about this victory over the cross that's so powerful that, that it impacts the whole world. You know, people from other nations, people from future generations are all going to share in the victory over the cross. That's what Jesus clung to. Okay? At his wit's end, that's where he had the strength to endure in his Father's promise. Uh, Hebrews 2.12 actually says that, um, that that promise was actually his joy to endure the cross. And what you need to realise, it's only because Jesus went to the cross for us, that's how God's promises can all be made yours. Okay, When you put your faith in Jesus, all of God's promises, it says, become yours. As if God spoke them personally to you. As if he wrote them down on a note and says, Put this in your pocket, get it out every time you're struggling. Because I've made a personal promise to you, it all comes to you through Christ. And so that's the king's strength. That's the king's strength that you now have full access to. So that's the first part. Now the second part of this um, passage is in verses 9 to 20, where we see the king's deliverance. The king's deliverance... Uh, so at this point, David is assured that, uh, that, that he will be able to rescue his family. Okay, the Lord assured him of that. And so David and 600 men set out to find the culprits. And about 25k into the journey, a third of the men just can't go on any longer. Uh, it says that they are too exhausted um, in verse 10. Which you could understand, remember? Three day, 100k trek, get home, cry till you've got no strength left. Now you've got to get up and run 25k. Of course they're going to be exhausted. So they leave those fellows at a, um, a brook, and David keeps going with 400 men. And I, don't, I have no idea how they knew where they were going, because, like, we know it was the Amalekites who attacked, but David doesn't know that. And it's not like the Amalekites would have left a business card. Um, on all that smouldering um, city. Uh, and so how does David know where to go? I mean, most likely there are tracks. You know, if an army's coming in and going out again, there'll be 
evidence of that, so he might know a general direction to go in, but in terms of how far are they away? Like, how long ago did it all happen? Will they ever catch up to these guys? All of that was just unknown. However, what happens? Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. See, they just so happened to stumble upon this Egyptian, and uh, the writer, um, he takes up a lot of time to tell us how much food it took to get this guy going again. So it indicates he must be important. He must be an important aspect to the story. And it turns out that this Egyptian, he is one of the slaves of, this, of the Amalekites, the very people who raided um, David's uh, residence. And uh, he agrees to lead David to the Amalekites. And, uh, you know, like I've been saying in 1 Samuel, wow, what a, what a lucky turn of thing. <laughs> what a lucky event. But we know there's no um, luck, no chance events. This is God's providence. And uh, verse 16, it says that they found the Amalekites who were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. In other words, the, the Amalekites are too full and too drunk to be able to fight. So David comes upon them at exactly the right moment where he can just go in there, just 400 men, clean them up. 400 got away. Um, but verse 18, it says that David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. It says nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought all back. Uh, it says he also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Now, notice what's emphasised in those verses there. What's emphasised is the completeness of the rescue. It's a complete rescue in that no one is missing. Okay, everyone's recovered. It says, uh, verse 19 actually repeats it on both ends of the um, sentence. Nothing was missing, David brought back all. So it's to show us this is a complete salvation. This is the kind of king that you need. You need a king who, when he goes out on a rescue mission, he doesn't fail, but he brings back everyone, every single one that he um, was determined to find. And again, the application to us, what's the application? We can only know it when we go through Jesus. Okay, because in many ways, we are actually like the women and the children in this passage. We are like them. You know, in our fallen state, what are we? We're lost, we're helpless, we're captive, we're under the bondage of an enemy, we're unable to free ourselves. So what do we need? We need a rescuer. Okay, we need someone who's going to come and, and, and seek and find. That's what we need. We need someone who's, who's willing to risk their life in order to bring us back. And of course, that's the king that we have in Jesus. And just as none of David's people were missing, not even one. So on that last day, no one will be missing from all of those that Jesus came to rescue. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? Not one will be missing. Uh, have a look at um, John 6.39 where Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. And do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about you, if you belong to him. Okay, None will be missing. What a comfort that is. You don't have to worry that on the last day that somehow you are overlooked. No, Christ will not lose any. In fact, he even goes on in John 10 to tell us that no one can snatch them out of his hand. That's how secure you are if you're in him. Okay, that's the king's deliverance. That's the one that we have that absolute assurance of, that if we are in Christ, we will be safe forever. Okay, so that we've seen the king's strength, the king's deliverance. Uh, third, we see the king's grace. The king's grace, that's in verses 21 to 31. And uh, this time, we come back to, remember those 200 guys who were completely um, exhausted? Uh, we come back to them, and we hear in verse 22 uh, that the ones, uh, where is it? Oh, that there's these wicked and worthless fellows among David's men. That's a bit weird. What does that mean? <clears throat> the wicked and worthless fellows, it turns out it means these are the guys who, who are stingy. Okay, they're the guys who have this kind of attitude that says, every man for himself. And when they come up to these 200 men who couldn't fight because they were um, completely stuffed, uh, they say to them, look guys, you can have your wives and children back, but don't, don't for one second think you're getting handy hands on that plunder. You didn't work for it, that's ours. You're not getting a share. See the way they're thinking? Okay, they're saying, you guys didn't fight, that means you don't deserve it, you're not getting it. But then notice the way David handles this. In verses 23 to 25, he, it shows us the kind of king he is, or, or the king that he will be. Because he basically says to those stingy fellows, we're not doing things that way in my, under my rule. We're not doing it like that. No, the, the ones who stayed back, they get exactly the same share as those who went into the battle. And then he makes it a rule for Israel in verse 25. And the reason David did that is because he realises where the victory actually came from. Okay, how, were they able, how were these 400 men able to defeat an Amalekite army? How did they do it? Well, he tells us in verse 23, he says, it's what the Lord has given us. It's what the Lord has given us. See, David recognises God's hand in all of this. Now, how, how could they ever find the Amalekites in the first place if not God providing that Egyptian? How could they beat an Amalekite army if not for the fact that they come at just the right time where, where they're all drunk and can't even swing a sword straight? See, there were too many factors that had to line up in David's favour for him to win. And the factors that David had no control over. And David has enough humility to recognise that, that it's actually the Lord who gave them the victory. And if it's the Lord who gave them the victory, then it's not by works. It's not by, look how great we are, look how tough we are. It's all by grace. See, it's what the Lord has done. And uh, that, that outlook that, that enabled David to, to correct all those wicked fellows that's actually the outlook that David had for all of life. And we looked at that a little bit last week when we, we checked out um, Psalm 23, you know, where David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. 
What David is saying there is that every moment of his life, he lives and breathes by the grace of God. That, that was the outlook David had on life. And see, when that gets into your heart, it turns your world upside down so that when you relate to other people, you don't, you don't relate to them with this I'm only going to give you what you deserve kind of mentality. It's kind of a works mentality. But, you know, for David, you could, you could almost imagine him saying to the guys, can you just imagine if, if God treated you the way you're treating your fellow brothers? Imagine if God treated us only according to what we deserve. Would we ever receive anything good from him? Of course not. Okay, it's only by grace that we have anything good from God. But see, it's only a sinner saved by grace who gets that. And it seems like David had some men in his company who didn't get that. Men who, in their minds, God was very small, very distant, not really involved in the affairs of life, so that when they go out and fight a battle, all that they can see is their efforts, their energy spent. And as a result, they, they think that everything they have is because they worked for it, because they put their body on the line. And as a result, they're stingy to what everyone else. See, see the difference that faith makes? What does faith plainly see? Exactly what David says, that it's what the Lord has given us. That it's all by grace. And maybe for us, we have an even bigger struggle than those wicked fellows. And the reason I say that is because you know, we live pretty comfortable lives, don't we? You know, we've got everything kind of laid out. We don't have to worry about where, where's tomorrow's meal going to come from. Um, we just go, go to the fridge. Um, we, uh, we don't live you know, in this kind of environment where any moment an army could come in and raid your village and take all your family away. We don't, we don't live with that fear here. And so maybe with all the comfort that we have, that perhaps we're not really in touch with, with this outlook that David has, that all of life it's about God's grace. Maybe for us, God's grace is just a theological concept. You know, something we might talk about if we're in a, a debate over um, you know, how does salvation work. However, for David, God's grace was the very lens in which he viewed all of life. It shaded everything. It transformed everything. And that showed itself in the way he conducted his leadership. It showed him in the way that he shared the spoils of the victory. Okay, even with the undeserving, these guys who had no part in it, they get just as much. And that last paragraph, we've got David um, sending spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present from you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And so already we're starting to see the kind of king David would be. Uh, which we're starting to see this is a king who really is after God's own heart, a king of grace. And we have to remember that all the way back in chapter 8, in 1 Samuel, when all of this issue of kingship started to come up, Remember, the people wanted a king like all the nations. And the prophet Samuel warned them, that will be a king who does one thing only, take, take, take. And Saul turned out to be that kind of king. But the true king, the one after God's own heart, is not a king like that. No, he's a king who gives. 
who gives and gives and gives, who shares the spoils, even with the undeserving. See, he's the king of grace. And again, we see in David this shadow of the true king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, the one who gives and gives and gives and gives. Jesus is the king who's so generous that he actually gave himself. For who? The undeserving. Okay, sinners like us. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. I'm sure many of you know it off by heart. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not not as a result of works so that no one may boast. See, do you realise what you've been given in Jesus? Something that you can never earn. You might be the, the, the worst sinner around and think there's no way God would ever do anything nice for me. And yet look at the kind of king that Jesus is, the one who, who gives this wonderful gift of salvation at the cost of him, his own blood. That's the grace of the king. What a king we have. And see, if you know Jesus, and if you know that that's the way he's treated you, then that has to change your life. You can't go on like the wicked fellows. You can't go on looking at other people and go, I'm only going to give you what you deserve. You can't do that anymore because you've found grace, which means that when you relate to other people, it has to be grace. Now, if you're in the kingdom of Jesus, what kind of kingdom is that? It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of generosity. It's a kingdom where forgiveness rules because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not holding people according to what they deserve. Have you experienced the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus? How can you tell? It shows itself in your life. You start to look like the king. I ask you today, has that happened to you? Have you found the king of grace? See, Jesus, he is the king we need. He's the king you all need. If you want the strength to face sorrow, if you want deliverance from all your fears, if you want to be treated by God with grace, it's all in Jesus. So take hold of Jesus. Trust him as your king. Give your life to him. Enjoy living under his rule because it's a rule of grace. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of the grace of the King. We thank you, Father, that we see that his deliverance is complete, that we never have to fear that in some way Jesus will fail. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the strength that we find when we turn to Christ and find that in him all of your promises are yes and amen. Lord, we pray especially for those who are burdened today by the, uh, the struggles of life, uh, where they might feel that it's just too hard. But we pray, Lord, that in that, that each one would find your strength and find that you are indeed sufficient, that your grace is sufficient. Father, we also pray that uh, we would be people who are transformed so that we look like Jesus in the way that we interact we pray that if, if we are having a struggle to forgive someone or a struggle to 
uh, show kindness. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would reflect more deeply on the kindness that we have received and that we would be able to show that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.